This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Dr. Peter Reed, who is an associate professor of early American literature at the University of Mississippi. He received his PhD in 2005 from Florida State University, where he also taught as an instructor from 2005 to 2007. He has also received NEH-funded postdoctoral grant in 2007 for archival research in early American theater culture in Philadelphia. He has published articles on early American and Atlantic theater and is also working on various book projects that looks at the outcasts and role characters in early American theater. He teaches at the University of Mississippi, both graduate and undergraduate courses in early American literature. Today, we will be discussing his book, Staging Haiti in 19th Century America, Revolution, Race, and Popular Performance. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Reed. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. So this is a book about um, theater and popular performance, but also about um, the broad sort of cultural construction of Haiti in the from the end of the 18th century to the middle of the 19th century. Um, it's it's American North American focused for the most part, but it does look um, down to Haitian performance in the Caribbean. It looks to um, British performance to some degree, and um, it was just my attempt to sort of figure out what, in a broad sense. Haiti meant to people um, when they were talking about it, writing about it, um, and acting it out um, in their sort of everyday lives. And um, yeah. So, why did you select Haiti as you talk as your topic? And you alluded to it a few moments ago. But how did you become interested in it? Interested in it? And why did you decide to share it? Great question. Um, so you know, Haiti to me. You know, I'd read, it's just part of my studies and my scholarship to sort of read widely and especially social commentary and the, and some, but fiction and 
literature as well in the 18th and 19th centuries. And I kept running across references. And uh, it was pretty clear that the Haitian Revolution um, was a was sort of an open and Haiti's sort of progress as a nation and their existence to the south of the United States was sort of this like weird open secret to Americans at the time. They knew about it. They knew certain things about it. They had heard about it or heard stories. There was a lot of misinformation as well, um, as you could imagine. And and so I had run across these sort of random references. Herman Melville makes a reference to Haiti in a short story or a play, you know, performed a few times in 1795 has a character who, you know, um, uh, had uh, with a plantation owner in Haiti before the revolution, these kinds of things. And you, this sort of the weight of these sort of um, not random references, but, but sort of near random feeling references started to build up to the point where I asked myself, what, what exactly is, I think it's worth a book project to figure out what the big picture here might be. So, and I know this is from my own knowledge and most often, you know, that Haiti is there and it really became illuminated more after various natural disasters, especially in the minds of Americans. But how do you think most people think about Haiti and the Haitian revolution? Mm -hmm. And that's um, actually where I started the book was thinking when I started researching the book, it was at one of those moments as you, probably could guess after the um in 2011 i was researching it and the earthquake was very fresh in everybody everybody's minds the port-au-prince earthquake and um uh it and i and i did notice that 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 is as you say a major sort of pattern um and and one that people had used to define haiti over time and um and it's and it's sort of that's sort of one of the major arcs uh of of American sort of thinking about Haiti is that the revolution itself constituted a, a great disaster of sorts um, of in sort of the same way that earthquakes and, you know, tsunamis and, you know, cholera outbreaks also were disasters in Haitian disasters in the popular mind. And um, that, that was really interesting. And of course, as you could imagine, and that, that was driven by the, um, the sort of like pro pro slavery interest in the United States, and um, but there was also this sort of counter, like really influential counter narrative um, that uh, people noticed as well, which is that Haiti was also an inspiring, you know, anti colonial, revolutionary, and a potentially democratic effort. Um, uh, and those two uh, major strands of thinking um, have been in competition. Ever since, you know, uh, the 1790s, ever since 1804 and Haitian independence. And there's other, there's other, I should add, there's other strains of thinking as well, which is one of the things I was interested in exploring about, exploring in the book. Um, and so, you know, there's also the Haitian revolution as a sort of like um, thing connected to, you know, voodoo or zombieism or Haitian folklore or folk culture. Um, that's also important and not something that I addressed as much in, in the book, but uh, Haiti has always been the short of it is, I guess, Haiti has always been a, a really complicated thing, uh, for Americans 
for African-Americans, for, you know, white liberals looking south for pro-slavery, you know, um, voices in in the United States um, have they've all sort of like had their own hot takes on Haiti over time. I agree. It, Haiti is it definitely in some ways looms large in the minds of Americans. But then there's also this idea that we really kind of don't want to talk about it. Um, that even goes back to after the Haitian Revolution, um, especially as we were right there. If you think about Jefferson and what that Thomas Jefferson, what that represented to him in some ways and that fear of insurrection spreading. Um especially um, to the enslaved African-Americans. Um, so it's, there's a complicated, I want to say, dynamic that most Americans have with Haiti and what it means and how to actually conceptualize. Um, which I was, it was very nice um, as I was reading your book and the ways in which you talk about that. Um, but I wanted to ask you also sources. Um, what sources do you use in your analysis? Sure. So I was really interested. So, so the source, the archive for this project is, is quite broad. Um, and, uh, um, you know, it had started, I'm a, I'm a person who's written about as a scholar, I've written about theater and performance and I, um, uh, teach literature. And so I was always interested in these major, major texts I might find that, um, articulated in some creative um uh way what what americans might really think about haiti you know right so like i've always i had always been on the alert and there was a few there's a few of those there's a few plays here and there some of them are quite important in the history of you know atlantic theater so um and there's and there's some major short fiction so those are like i have a sort of imaginative archive where artists or creative you know, content producers of the 19th century were going in and deliberately really um, uh, producing a vision of Haiti from time to time. But those are relatively rare. And so what I ended up relying on quite heavily in the project, and I guess I was not necessarily surprised about it, but I was happy with the fact that I was able to find sort of like there's newspaper references, there's short story, like short anecdotes that pop up in columns um, all along the Eastern seaboard from the 1790s onward. There's little short news items that are republished, published and republished in, you know, newspapers in the 1820s, 30s and 40s when print, print culture really ramps up in the United States. And, um, and I, uh, and I just was able to, thankfully, like sort of able to find amongst all the pamphlets and the broadsides and the newspaper items, um, like sort of evidence that enough to stitch together that sort of showed what people were thinking and saying about Haiti in their less guarded moments, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it was so nicely done in your book, the way in which you incorporated um, all of the sources. Now, as you were writing, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? <laughs> sure. Well, you know, that that very rely, the reliance on that archive is itself a challenge because you you end up and I'm sure I missed loads of really interesting stuff. That is challenging too, right? You know, you're just like I know if I just 
sat down with another run of 1824 newspapers, I will find, you know, some really interesting, more interesting stuff. Um, so one of the challenges is, is, um, finding uh, material in the first place. And there's amazing archives that I owe a tremendous amount to from the Library of Congress to the Library Company in Philadelphia, the American Antiquarian Society, um, the National Archives, right, um, had uh, materials. And a lot of these places have gone to great lengths to make them um, digitally available, but also like when you have to go in person and just look at old stuff. Um, they've been those places, those archives and libraries and collections have just been terrific. Um, and, but that's a, that's a major challenge. And it just took this project sort of a long time to develop because the material was just slow to collect in some ways. Um, and but the other big challenge that I liked that I really enjoyed, but also, you know, it frustrated me a lot was a sort of more conceptual one, which is that Haiti is sort of both everywhere and nowhere at the same time when you start looking for it. And um, almost almost anything can sort of feel like a reference to Haiti in, in certain circles or certain contexts. And, um, and it became a real sort of like sifting operation or pondering operation to sort of think about like what what is like really what's really going on here where do i where do i want to what do i want to include and what what's unnecessary and um and also like like how do you sort of genuinely prove or show that people were thinking about haiti when they were making sort of like offhand references or like snide remarks or visual you know caricatures and cartoons that may or may not be a hate you know be a meaningful haiti and so that's a lot of it a lot of it is just the the amount of like you know reference and innuendo and insinuation that was involved in in this in people talking and thinking about haiti so made it really challenging to sort of sort out and when they did talk directly about haiti i often found that they said less interesting you know like the sort of like the the plantation commentary or the political commentary was, was actually like not as engaging to me. It was usually people sort of that they felt like they were sort of saying one thing only and not, and not being as interesting as I was hoping they would be. But, but there was still loads and loads of really interesting stuff that that was a real challenge to sort. I can only imagine how difficult that was to get through. Um, now, as you were working on the project and you were thinking about the conceptualization of it, whose work would you consider as being influencing your own? Sure. Well, um, pro- probably the number one uh, biggest uh, driver of this project was the was the work of the Haitian sociologist Michel Rolf Trudeau who wrote a big book in, I think, 1995, uh, Silencing the Past, and made, and made this argument that, uh, that I always, like I took it as a challenge, I believe he is correct, and, uh, and also that, there was, that it left us with an opening. And, um, you know, he sort of made the argument that Haiti has become sort of like unthinkable. It's, um, it's just been rendered in ways that, like have um you know exiled it from the from the sort of historical imagination of western of non-haitian observers really and i that's yes 
okay, I agree. The evidence all seems to point to the fact that Haiti is being marginalized in these really profound ways by historical discourse, by political discourse, by sociological discourse, um, even when it's well-meaning sometimes. And um, But I thought to myself, if Haiti is unthinkable, there, there still seems to be so much evidence that folks were actually engaging with Haiti in some, maybe not in rational and thinking ways, but maybe in feeling or um, affective ways or or in ways that, in fact, performance is in a position to really talk about. And so if they aren't thinking about it, what are they acting out, you know, when they're not, uh, when they're not rationally engaging the idea of Haiti? And so Truyo's work has been just so important to me. But there's such a list. Um, um, Dubois, the Duke historian who's written um, fantastic historical accounts of the Haitian Revolution has just been, um, the work has been inspiring and the, the way that he approaches that, those historical questions, um, the depth of evidence and, and, and also as a person, he's just really a, a lovely person. It's very, very like supportive. And, um, uh, so Laurent Dubois has been really important in his work. Um, uh, reaching back a little further and i know it just sounds like i'm listing but this is a this is a such a fun question the the work of clr james for anybody interested in haiti um is so so important um uh oh i'm blanking on the name of james's black jacobins um so published in the mid 20th century and then republished a little bit later and that's been just like a sort of um like a like a extended lesson in in how to talk about Haiti with respect and understanding its full potential and understanding its place in history instead of marginalizing it um yeah so and there's and there's current contemporary scholars along with du, Laurent Dubois there's Marlene Doubt whose work on Haiti and Haitian literature is amazing just a huge body of um of really uh, sophisticated and detailed and committed work that she's been doing. Um, oh, I could go on, and I'm just not. I'm. I could. I could talk your ear off, but uh, but let but let me not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there is. You know, it's one of those things where it's nice to actually hear um, about scholars actually working on Haiti, Haiti, because you're right. For so long, it has been marginalized. Uh, and it's something that, you know, thankfully in the field, um, academic field, it's picking up, but, you know, in the minds of so many, it's, you know, it's hard for people to understand what to make of Haiti um, and how to address it. And so that's something that it's nice to see you and other scholars trying to shed light on a country that has a very, 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 fruitful and very, very interesting history. I mean, you know, when you think of Haiti, and even if you think of the context of the Haitian Revolution in and of itself, what was accomplished was pretty, I will say, amazing amazing given the time period that they were able to do it. Um, And it took planning. And it took, you know, it was careful planning that had to be articulated um, and they were able to do it. And, but yet for so many, it's such a, I want to say controversial topic, 
uh, in the minds of many. Um, and that's what I wanted to ask you. Their terminology, as I was reading your book, it's very, very key and important. And you mentioned that you use the term embedded performance. Um, can you explain what that means for listeners? Sure. So that's an that's an idea um, that I have to I have to sort of give credit for the inspiration for that idea to this to a scholar of Caribbean uh, narrative and history. Nicole Aljo, who's at, um, I believe at Northeastern University in Boston. And um, she had done some really important archival work um, with with texts from from Caribbean planter society and uh, with trying to recover um, individual stories and human lives from this documentation that really was all about sort of like um, um re- the documentation was really all about reimagining people as you know as property as um you know draft animals as as profit and loss on the books and and not in human ways and she and she talks really persuasively about the idea of embedded narratives and so you can find these little snippets of life stories <clears throat> excuse me within within the like in the un, unlively or inhuman documentation of a plantation. And I thought that's really, that's really fascinating. Um, and uh, that's a true, that's a, that's a really original and um, uh, um, rigorous approach to the documentation instead of just sort of throwing our hands up and saying, well, we just can't know um, which is, which is right too, in some ways under some circumstances, but there's more to say there. And I thought about the plays and the uh, dramas and the performative moments that I had, um, that I had access to. And a lot of them didn't actually, um, they didn't actually give us direct access, at least on the surface to, to sort of like Haiti, Haiti itself or Haitian people, or performances that came out of Haiti. And that, like on some level, like I, I don't consider myself an expert in Haiti. Um, unfortunately, I'm more of an American lit guy and a North American, US American culture guy. And, but but I could sense that there was something sort of like over the horizon that that was informing a lot of these performances, even when they seem to be completely separated from or like derisive of Haiti or just lampooning it. There was often still something there. You could sort of like track something back. There's a there, there deep in the background. Um, Even behind a minstrel show, there were sometimes sort of like identifiable performances that said that actually, uh, you know, connected in a legit way to Haiti, not just as, as a white person's, you know, reinvention of Haiti from a distance. And, and this was an idea that like, I, you know, reviewers will tell me whether it was successful or not, but this was the, the hope was that I would be able to look within, you know, a, a play put on in Philadelphia or in London or a, or a narrative fiction that used performance and sort of talk about what kinds of actual Haitian performance might be embedded within that and um, in ways that like shape, shaped it, even if, even if it was despite, uh, despite the performance's intent, if that makes sense. That does make sense. That actually uh, 
makes a lot of sense. So let's delve into some of these uh, plays. So when did Americans first began to perform Haiti and what did they perform when they first began this? So I, I should start by saying I struggled with the question of beginnings because not everything, especially in performance history, everything has an antecedent, you know? And uh, so when I started looking at my, my sort of like provisional beginning date was the, was the, you know, beginning of the Haitian revolution. But of course there's a performance, there are performance traditions and um, there's a performance culture that predates the revolution. So anything coming out in the 1790s, anything um, emerging in the 1790s has has predecessors, and and to some extent, colonial uh, Saint Domingue, you know, from the 1750 to 1790, is um, one of the world's richest and most elaborate like performance cultures. They had colonial theaters that paid more than the French theaters. They had um, famous actors and original plays and were being put on. And this performance culture spilled out into the streets. And there was a world of, you know, performance um, that involved, um, in, you know, enslaved people on plantations or it involved people of color in the, in the towns. And this all sort of predates the revolution and informs it. Um, and, and there are some really good scholarly accounts of sort of colonial Saint-Domingue and the, and the sort of rich and bifurcated and weird and varied, um, world that, 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 that was, um, but my provisional starting point was sort of when, when Haiti became revolutionary and when Americans first started learning about it in some depth of detail. So 1791 to 93, um, it seemed to be the, the place where you could start seeing it in North America, in the United States. Um, and one of the things that I was really interested in was that there appeared to have been a wave of, um, uh, of emigrants out of colonial Saint-Domingue. Uh, they, they came in wa- multiple waves really, but, but, a, but a sort of surge of, immigration to eastern seaboard uh cities uh baltimore philadelphia um to some extent um charleston and charleston south carolina and boston up in the north um but the middle atlantic saw this huge influx of refugees 1793 to 95 or so and they um and they made their refugee status a public thing um and some of them became actors so this was probably one of the little tidbits of historical like trivia that first set me on thinking about the whole project. And um, so one of the questions I started with was what the heck would they have been acting with? What what would these refugees from a revolutionary, from a place experiencing slave uprisings that would eventually become, you know, obviously a revolution, what would these refugees do and who were they? Were they were they all white plantation owners or shopkeepers who had been run out of Cap Francois? That's that's probably the majority of them, but many many were not. Um, then there's some suggestions that there were people of color, um, there there were enslaved people amongst those refugees. So there was this whole interesting mix of like in incoming you know 
people from revolutionary Haiti who had stories to tell about it. Um, and, and they acted out certain at certain moments acted out on the stage, um, their position as refugees. Um, and I found that to be like a really interesting, that was sort of the starting point for this project. And I worked on the 1790s for a, for longer than I should have really. Um, but, but it turns out that there's a, there's a ton going on there. And that was one of the sort of like, um, driving one of those sort of energizing moments of performance about Haiti for, for good or for ill. Right. Because, um, so many different people came in with different stories, some of which were, you know, anti-revolutionary, you know, counter-revolutionary stories or pro-slavery stories. Um, yeah. So, and what was their reception in American society? How were they received? It was, it was complex. From what I understand, it was complicated. Um, so, you know, in a, I'm not sure if I can sort of like, uh, put it all in a nutshell easily, but, you know, um, re uh, refugees from Haiti, uh, from, from revolutionary Haiti, which still Saint-Domingue at the time, um, would have been, you know, under, they would have been understood primarily as like sort of as French people, also as victims of a, of a disaster, right? And, and whether or not people on the ground in Philadelphia or Baltimore truly understood the parameters of what was happening down there is an is a open question. They often sort of politicized the, the reception of the refugees and the immigrants was politicized, not always uh, because of race, which is what modern observers might expect to see, but Often because, you know, uh, the Jeffersonian, the Democratic Republicans were pro-French and the um, and the Federalists were sort of a, a bit more a bit more suspicious of the French and sort of more Anglophile. And so that couldn't just your general uh, attitude towards Frenchness could influence your your reception, how you felt about those refugees, your if you were an American, your proximity to uh, slavery itself would have influenced so your reception. So slaveholders, but not in always predictable ways. So slaveholders felt some sympathy for those other dispossessed slaveholders, but they also were suspicious of them and worried that they were bringing revolution along with their, you know, um, their household servant that came north with them and, uh, and these kind of things. So it's like, it's really a mixed and vexed and ambivalent bag of responses that you see. Uh, and so maybe, uh, and that's where I sort of felt like I had to leave it in the book. Like maybe just all you can really say is that like that, that was highly unpredictable, you know, how any given like um, audience member might respond to any given observer might respond to an, an, a refugee or an immigrant from French Saint-Domingue. That makes a lot of sense. And I know one of the um, plays that you talk about is Murdoch's Triumph of Love. So that particular piece, what issues were being addressed that related to the Haitian revolution and how did people respond to it? Sure. That's a really interesting play because um, uh, for a whole bunch of sort of theater, theatrical theater, historical reasons. Right. But it's also um, uh, 
telling in what it tries to do with Haitian refugees. So it's a play that centers on um, disp- like some of its main characters are um, dispossessed, ha- a Haitian dispossessed, um, sorry, French Saint-Domingue uh, dispossessed brother and sister, right. Who have left, um, the Island and come North and, and they sort of intrude on the Philadelphia life of Quakers and city folks and their servants and including their, um, their African, uh, enslaved person named Sambo. So a little bit of sort of race, early racial, racial stereotyping going on there. Like that's Sambo is sort of a, both a, proto minstrel character but also not and so but um the play uh called the triumphs of love is subtitled um the was it the happy the reconciliation it's all it's all about reconciling these different groups and trying to imagine how once the refugees get there um america might americans might adjust their trajectory a bit and sort of integrate their you know lifestyle their political ideas their social standards to sort of um become a big happy like greater caribbean creole family um and so the sister clementine who comes from french saint-domingue marries into the family and the brother um uh, beauchamp becomes best friends with uh, the the quaker uh, george a main character and so there's this sort of urge and so it feels to me like the play is um modeling or ins- or insisting on a sort of coming together that was probably fairly difficult in real life that some people may have been sympathetic towards refugees like the characters in the play but many were probably more suspicious and um and there's a sort of register of that suspicion when uh the quaker uh george um reforms himself and he's actually a slaveholding quaker which would have been a bit of a contradiction in the 1790s and um so he reforms himself in uh manumits he freezes slave uh sambo and um this is the american stage's first manumission scene uh, and it's and it's uh, and it's an important moment. So, you know, um, instead of ignoring the free or unfree status of a black person on stage, it actually like makes it part of the plot. And um, and the sort of uh, depressing conclusion that this particular play comes to is that once Sambo gets his freedom, he uh, he then gets together with some other local black folks, which is in itself not a, not necessarily a bad thing. But uh, they get together, engage in misbehavior, and they come back sort of um, corrupted with French revolutionary um, thinking, you know, and uh, it is the sort of insinuation of the play that you can't really grant certain people their freedom because they'll probably, you know, take the wrong lessons from it and they'll they'll try to replicate what Haiti did. and so it's a it's a kind of a uh, it's kind of an anti um, it's an anti revolutionary play I guess it's not a leap to say that or um, a conservative play um, and it's one that imagines that tries to imagine you know the French planter classes that have been like kicked out of Haiti you know integrating nicely into American society it's a little bit optimistic on that count I think. Um, but it, but it sort of like maybe speaks to this sort of 
uh, I don't know what, what today would feel like a sort of like, you know, middle brow, middle class American desire for everybody just to get along, um, you know, and uh, and um, and it wasn't a particularly successful play, um, but it may have been for reasons like unrelated to its content. So it played a few times and John Murdoch, the the, the author, uh, sort of um, followed it up with a with a public complaint about how how the stage had not particularly rewarded his efforts. And um, so I think it does go to show that like, you know, uh, Haiti was of interest to some people or the count, like the sort of after effects of the revolution were present in some people's minds, but it also didn't become sort of instant smash hit uh, in the way that Murdoch himself might've hoped. Right. Maybe it was just at that point, maybe still a little too close. Um, Possibly, you know, a little distance and a time um, to try to conceptualize the events that had recently happened. And possibly, and I'm just taking a guess here, maybe the audience weren't quite ready to see that on stage yet. And I think also, you know, this idea of who's going to fit into American society and how you do that as to who belongs and who does not. I think that may have also been something that. Uh, maybe audiences weren't quite ready for in that moment, just in the wake of the revolution, just in the wake of, you know, all that. And, you know, as you say, it was in newspapers and everywhere, and we're bringing this to the stage. And distance may have given it um, a better reception um, over time. But that brings me to like 1804. So shortly, still thereafter, Dartmouth is actually talking about performance at their 1804 commemoration, and they have a performance of Dialogue on the Revolution in Santo and St. Domingo between Toussaint and Dessalines. And I'm like, what does that signify and show about the Haitian Revolution that we're actually discussing this at a commemoration in 1804 at Dartmouth? Right. This is fascinating, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, thank you. Uh, for I, I'm so glad people appreciate this. But um, this, by the way, was um, like Dartmouth archives who are so their special collections are so helpful. And they had they known about this document for a long time. And a few other historians have talked about it. But um, I still felt like it was worth visiting because it's such a weird moment. And it just shows sort of like the um, the way that reception of the Haitian Revolution could differ um, regionally, pol- by politics, by class background. And so, yes, the weirdness of this story is you have um, affluent, privileged white students in the middle of like the New England like countryside, essentially, right? At this like at this university that's sort of set off in a way. Um, it's not a I'm not sure like. The two, um, it's, uh, I'm forgetting their names. They're minor characters, Farley and Williams, um, and I'm forgetting their first names. Um, but they, but these two students got together and created this di- dialogue, and it's a theatrical dialogue, right? So it's essentially built to be, you know, performed in front of their commencement audience on their graduation day. And um, these are two guys who, like, you know, if they were New Englanders, their con- if they lived outside of a major city in New England, their contact with um, 
black people, um, people of African descent would have been fairly low. Like, like they wouldn't have had a ton of contact perhaps. And I could be, you know, I could be just wrong about that or, or, um, their, but their contact with folks from Haiti would have been probably a bit rare, like in their lives as well. And plus these are, you know, like 22 year olds, let's say, um, you know, they're, they're college graduates. So they maybe hadn't, hadn't traveled around or had the most cosmopolitan exposure to the world. And yet here they were. And, and possibly as part of like a political science class or um, because these performances that students created, these dialogues were often ways of showing off their learning. Right. Um, but they uh, they had pro- probably com- done this as a way of showing off a number of different skills. So um, uh, their skill in creating a dramatic dialogue, for one thing, and their skill in understanding like their what they had learned about the major characters, um, Louverture and Dessaline of the Haitian Revolution. So they knew a little bit of like recent they had done some recent history research, you know, or reading. And, um, and they were showing, they might've been showing off their skill in like reading French or something, because that might've been the sources. So it's not totally clear, like what the, what the sort of like direct purpose of the dialogue was, the, the, those things weren't really indicated, but they, but they got up nevertheless. And they sort of like spoke, uh, they played up, they, they sort of like played out their dialogue in character uh, and um, de- having this sort of debate about these two, rem- remember, like white, like 20 something year old privileged white kids from New England, having having this like ventriloquized debate about which direction the Haitian Revolution should go and um, and Haiti as a nation. So and um, which independence had just been declared at the time, if months before and news had sort of just filtered into the New England um back country as it were and uh and here they are like debating this and they have overture and some of it is like stereotyped or cliched right even by 1804 standards it would sort of be like a trope to imagine overture is like the um Toussaint overture is like the generous like upstanding and more like sort of um uh westernized almost like hero and Dessaline is like the more autocratic and potentially more um violent um character um who and and to, there are sort of episodes in in Haitian history that like that tend to to I won't say support that idea but you can tell that certain episodes are are um the source of some of these tropes right um and uh Louverture was rumored to have like generously saved his own his own former owner at the time of the revolution and Dessaline was generally credited with like some, some wartime, um, you know, massacres that, that the French really publicized and didn't like, of course. And so there's, so the tropes are there and it's trope based and it's, um, but it's also sort of like a genuine like debate about what slave revolution might mean, uh, to in in the sort of in a sort of like broad political context so thinking about revolutions in general and and it's also this weirdly um literary thing that takes those characters and and sort of like um puts them in dialogue in part by um by bringing 
by having Louverture, the character in the dialogue, be like sort of like returned from the dead almost, like as if as if his uh his arrest and his transportation to France had like never happened. He actually got rescued by some sympathetic observers and um that's how he can have a dialogue with Dessaline, his successor. Um and it's so this really weird and interesting like reimagination, reimagining of what the revolution means um that in some ways is like completely oblivious and clueless and trope based and in other ways it's like really you know challenging and interesting so it's so fascinating to imagine that this is going on at a commencement ceremony and you have this you have this performance and as you say granted we are talking about new england where the population of african descent is not that much during this time so you know it's just fascinating that they were able to come up with this play uh, this dialogue between the two characters and you know that it was actually allowed to be um, performed at commencement uh, you know so, you know if only I could have been a spectator for that I know it would have been it would have been something, right? <laughs> yes, you know, just to see them go into this, but that shows, you know, it does show that the Haitian Revolution it was looming in the minds of many, and what direction actually Haiti is supposed to take at this point after the revolution. So you do have these, as we would say, you know, couple of twenty two-year-olds who just finished college, it's looming in their mind as well. All of the changes, I guess, that were, and they're in New England of all places. It's looming um, for them as well. But, you know, that brings me to here where you have kind of um, Ira Aldridge and his performance in Christopher, King of Haiti. Now, with his performance, and this is something that I'm actually... Um, delving into in my dissertation and it's talking about travel and the size of the black celebrity. Uh, how did his performance kind of help lead into the rise of the black celebrity during the 19th? Yeah. This is, that was um, one of the, my favorite chapters to write that, and I, the story of Ira Aldridge is such a fascinating one, but I, but I will, and the story of like rising celebrity, um, uh, as you say, is like really important. Um, it's also like one of the things that I, I wish I'd been able to, and maybe I drew it out enough, but what I, it shows that there's this whole like counter trajectory, counter trajectory, this like this whole other narrative of black people, you know, um, in the United States, but more broadly as well, like over in, over in England as well, um, that, that have like for gener at the point where Ira Aldridge becomes famous, they had for like a generation plus been talking about Haiti, admiring its accomplishments. They understood, you know, the implications of the revolution and they were watching the, the nation building, you know, that was happening and, um, they were paying close attention to it. And, um, so, um, Aldridge himself was a really interesting character and, and your audience may know, um, he's, he's sort of got this outsized reputation as the first black 
Shakespearean, but he was just a star. He was just a star actor. Um, uh, he, he was not just a Shakespearean, let me say. Uh, he, was, he was sort of a really well-rounded and uh, a famous in sort of a number of different genres, um, famous and, and um, c- credited with capability, right? So the critics, popular and critically acclaimed, let's say. And, um, and he came out of New York, out of a short-lived Black New York theater scene um, that had already produced a number of stars um, that are that are like not quite as well known, James Hewlett. Um, but but they're still to theater historians. We know that as like the sort of beginnings of formal professional black theater that um, that would then produce, you know, really major figures in like Aldridge and then would sort of go. He would be in sort of a lineage that would lead to like the big um the big African-American stars of the 20th century. So it's almost a direct line. So he's in there. And um, even though he sort of left, he left the United States and eventually died in, you know, I think after a stint in the, in the, you know, in Russia and Poland and Germany um, stints and earning acclaim the whole way. But he, he was, he was just a big hero and he's sort of like lost to American uh, theatrical history in some ways just because he had such a cosmopolitan career um, but what I was interested in was this moment sort of early in his career where he makes the jump from New York City which would which would had a theater scene but it was pretty provincial in the 18 early 1820s late 18 teens and usually New York would import sort of washed up English actors, uh, and one or two of them would become famous in American circles, um, but the but the traffic was was pretty one way at the time, and um, uh, I'm probably forgetting one or two American stars who did like a tour, but the but the real sort of two way traffic would 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 not develop until a bit later. Um, so Aldridge was actually made the jump in the against the grain against the the flow of theatrical traffic and went to London and wowed everybody with his, with his acting abilities. Um, and, um, and had a, had a, uh, pretty successful, uh, first season in London. Um, and, uh, the, the last thing he did in his, and I believe I'm getting this chronology, right? The last thing that he did in the, at the end of his first season as he was sort of up for contract renewal essentially was uh take on the star role of Christoph the king of Haiti who had in real life king Christoph had just like uh maybe a few seasons before had had like had died and that so it was basically a current history play but it had been rewritten by an english uh, English popular dramatist uh, to be sort of like tragic comedy, right? If that makes sense. So it, so it was definitely pop theater. It was not high, uh, high Shakespearean drama by any means. But Aldridge took on this role, and it was such a success. Him playing the Haitian king, the recently deceased Haitian king, that um, it was such a success that he then ended up with re- renewed and bigger contracts for the following seasons. And that sort of springboarded him into like a broader UK um, fame and celebrity. 
And um, it was part of him showing that he could play um, serious dramatic roles as well as getting typecast into like traditional black roles um, that were either sort of proto minstrelsy or occasionally like Othello. Right? Um, and those, those plays are important too, but um, it was just part of him. So taking on the role of a Haitian King was part of Aldridge showing his range, I think, and, and proving to people or, you know, appealing to their sense of novelty for sure. But, uh, but, you know, the, the, the black American playing the Haitian King, you know, was a thing that, that they hadn't seen very often. Um, but, uh, but proving his, his abilities as well. Um, and then he sort of leverages that, and you know, with good business sense and some, some good publicity work into, you know, a longer career. Um, that's also very interesting. You know, it's just so amazing that he was able to sort of carve out this space himself during this time um and one of the things you know that the play does show is that you know blacks as well as whites were claiming you know in playing haiti during this period of time it wasn't just one or the other it was both um, absolutely often at cross purposes and sometimes in the same play. So, you know uh uh the if you look at the death of Christoph um that am john jh amherst play uh there are parts of it that are just really gross that are just really dis despicable you know and they're making haitian people look terrible and then there's and then there's aldridge taking on the role of the king and making him look you know like a like a hero like a like protagonist of a tragedy you know uh dignified and and powerful and conflicted and ultimately, you know, has a tragic downfall, but, but he's still the, he's still a genuinely strong, like a strong character and not just a minstrel stereotype. Right. I agree with that assessment. Now, by the time we get to like the period from the 1820s to the 1850s, which, you know, in American society, there's a lot that's going on. You've got the much bigger rise of the abolitionist movement in the North, you're going to be getting, um, that's in the North, but in the South, you know, slavery is becoming much more firmly entrenched. And of course you've got the more closed slavery arguments that are developing more forcefully to push back on the abolitionist arguments that are simultaneously occurring. So how was Haiti being presented and was, and was it not leveraged by both sides during this period? Yeah, that's a great, yeah, well said. Um, that's how I see it. And as I was finishing, as I was imagining how these chapters fit together, it, it sort of became more and more um, persuasive to me that to, to, to see that um, Haiti was becoming in the, certainly the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, before the U.S. Civil War, um, was sort of becoming this thing that, like, each side in the pro and anti-slavery debates was loading more and more, putting more, more and more pressure on the idea of Haiti as they went, and um, in particular, the the sort of respectability of Haiti became like a major. And I guess that had always been a bit of a theme, but it became such an overt idea 
like abolitionists were trying to like they had a political project you know which which was you know depending on which set you looked at it was obviously it was opposing slavery or ending slavery or restricting it in some way but they often did what they did um in they often couched their fight in terms of respectability um that this is like that slavery is is not respectable uh, slave traders are you know and you and if you if you've read around in the 19th century you'll sort of see this even in uh texts as as sort of well-known and big and important is Uncle Tom's Cabin, where, you know, uh, the slave owners are sort of a little bit blameworthy, but the real, the really bad folks are the disrespectable ones, the slave traders or the, or the backwoods people who don't have manners and this kind of thing. And so slavery gets from the abolitionist side, they sort of are like working on this idea of respectability. Always. They're trying to assert their own respectability. They're trying to assert the sort of morality and ethicality of their position. And, um, and uh, in, in sort of um, by extension, they pick up a story about Haiti that involves Haitian respectability. And um, they really emphasize characters that they feel represent their highest ethical and moral values. And Toussaint Louverture gets really elevated around in the 1850s. Yeah, he'd been around for decades and people had known him as a hero of the Haitian Revolution and the, you know an important leader. But like the fact that he becomes this like icon of Haitian respectability and proof that Haitian progress and Haitian you know, like upstanding status and their refinement are all and you know those things are all loaded together onto the character Toussaint Louverture. And and on the opposite side, um, sort of minstrelsy or blackface performance, which had always had been a sort of like pro-slavery. The Douglas Jones makes this argument really forcefully um, in his book, The Captive Stage, I believe is the name of it. And like minstrelsy just has this default pro-slavery, you know, ideology. Um, and uh, no matter what else you say about it, whether it's, whether you think it's, if you're, if you're the kind of person who tries to who, who thinks that it's about humor it's still default pro slavery um and and it's functionally sort of like pro slavery um and it's about the erasing of black bodies and replacing of them with made up white bodies right and um and so there's this so i began to sense this like major like you know not to be dramatic about it but like this sort of like battle for the for the soul of um Haiti uh, this sort of like battle to claim the style of representing Haiti whereas one side saw it as like the thing that ought to be elevated and as respect as respectable and as um admirable and all these things and the other side that sort of had this whole battery of popular performances that tended to like make a joke out of Haiti as much as possible and lower its sort of respectability quotient um, to travesty it, to mock it, to, to imitate it. And, um, that's the, and that seems to be, and so Haiti becomes a place where like American, white Americans affinity for black people plays itself out, um, in terms of respectability. Um, Well, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, this idea, you know, of respectability and especially Haitian respectability. And I'm thinking about, as you were talking about the character, uh, 
well, actually the person of Toussaint Overture and what he represented. And then, you know, especially for the abolitionist movement, but then, you know, it kind of flips that script because I'm thinking of at the same time, when you think about how controversial John Brown becomes uh, in a similar way um, and how, you know, the abolitionist movement had to grapple with him. And, you know, they can, you know, it's do we actually say we agree with what he does or do we kind of say, no, violence is not the way to go. But yet, you know, they were able to embrace, for the most part, um, Toussaint La Overture and what he did. That's very, very, it's fascinating when you think right. about it. It's such a question of selective memory too right and um the the uh, you know folks talking and this is you know white abolitionists but also black abolitionists saw the opportunity and were just like louverture's our guy you know and let me explain what he represents for us that we admire and the potential the haitian potential that we admire and um and i i would also it's it's, I'm so glad you mentioned John Brown. That's there's this very interesting like sub story that that like I just didn't have a space to put it in the book. Maybe it should have gone in. But do you, do you know about uh, there's this uh, funeral, this massive commemorative like um, effigy based funeral for John Brown in Haiti after he's executed and. Um, uh, Haitians, this so this sort of like lionizing major characters of revolution sort of goes both ways, right? Like North Americans were looking south at um, people like Toussaint Louverture, and um, Haitians were looking up up north to John Brown and seeing like a sort of like a very different kind of character, right? But like seeing a similar like heroic um figure that they could latch on to and um and then in performance they could show like their their like a respect for their attachment to the ideas he represents um, yeah it's just that i did not know that so that's like this fascinating tip that i want to know more about because it's like wow it was actually going both ways and they saw something in john brown that most americans try for the best. And, you know, whether it's their personal opinion or not, it, I think it was more often related to what the goals of the abolitionist movement were and what they were trying to promote uh, versus whether or not they agreed with his actions or the actions that he was willing um, to take during that time. But I wanted to ask you, do you think that the theatrical appropriation of Haiti by non-Haitians sometimes remove actual Haitians from the state. Yeah, that's always the danger. And, and, you know, I, I sort of, um, I was always trying to track back these performances back to Haiti, not in the sense of like, Oh, you know, the play, it, it was rare to successfully find like Haitian actors or evidence of plays that were put on, though there are some, especially, um, with, uh, with Henri's state performances in the 18 teens, um, Christophe in, um, Henri Christophe. But, uh, but that was a, that was a goal and a challenge in this project was I didn't want it to become a book about Haiti without Haitians. 
<laughs> right? And um, I didn't, there was enough erasure of Haitians that was constantly happening at the hands of, of white Americans or onlookers or outsiders um, of various stripes. And um, there was enough erasure that I didn't want to be like party to that as well, you know, um, and that meant like trying as hard as I could to find, you know, that like the 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 immigrants, um, you know, the former enslaved people who were um, going back and forth to Haiti in the 1820s and 30s, the the um, the folks who were writing letters home, the people who were admiring, you know, the black actors who were taking on those roles, um, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And that was, that was a goal. And, and that's a tough one because the very structure of our discipline and of our archives and um, sort of the very conditions of being an, you know, a North American doing research on Haiti means you're always struggling, I think, with that. Um, yeah, so it's something I thought about a lot and worried about. But you did a good job, I would say, of trying to balance that out um, in the book. Now, I want to ask you, what do you think is the legacy of the performance of the Haitian Revolution? What do you think the legacy is of it? Oh, good question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, I think in a sort of, historical or pragmatic sense you can kind of say well the the direct legacy was sort of a moving forward um moving forward into the late 19th century after the civil war and into the 20th century like my feeling is that haiti now got like certain tropes just really attached to haiti and um almost uh, nothing's permanent, but but they're very durable tropes. And um, so the figure of the Haitian revolutionary leader, like now looks, it's almost impossible to run across, you know, an academic study of Haiti uh, or Haitian revolutionary history that doesn't feature some version of the portrait of Toussaint Louverture on its cover, you know? And um, like that figure is like burned it's like burned into the collective memory at this point. And, um, and the, and the sort of like vision of Haiti, the sort of counter vision that was sort of promoted by refugees, white refugees in the 1790s first of Haiti as like a disaster, like an ongoing disaster, you know, or like an ongoing failure um, is that's the sort of other legacy that, and those things are really hard to reconcile and they're both incomplete pictures. Right. And I think, Karen Salt in her book, The Unfinished Haitian Revolution, gets at this, like, this is one of her, I think, arguments that I really learned from. And it's just an ongoing, what those major troops um, do for the legacy of Haiti is they try to lock it down into, and, and try to sort of make the implicit argument that Haiti is just one thing or the other. And it, and it's certainly, as anybody would, would know, if you thought, you know, in a sort of human sense, it's just much more complicated than that, you know. And the other major sort of legacy that we're still working on and shaking off is this, like, is this sort of image of, like, this sort of fixation on the on the major figures and the big dramas. Um, and and in fact, there's a lot more happening. And I hope it's sort of evident from the the examples that I picked out in this book, there's like stuff happening that's, that doesn't involve 
heroes and um you know major you know historical figures and that everyday people everyday haitians are really they they pop up and they do things that are profound and then they're often just lost to historical memory you know and um and that's that's one of the great things and it's important to remember about about haiti in particular but in any number of other places that have undergone sort of the same kinds of marginalization and Western or North American thought, but that, that is, you know, there's a, there's a Haitian legacy that's bigger, that's, that's more human and more complicated and also more profound than zombies or voodoo. Although those are certainly a part of the, you know, the human experience in Haiti, but they've kind of gotten blown up in the 20th century. Um, then that, that, that too, I think is one of the, one of the legacies so complex i think there's no single legacy and um not all of it is uh not not all of the theatrical legacy of haiti is bad so some of it is inspiring and makes haiti available as a coherent narrative with a heroic um potentially sort of heroic or triumphal um storyline i agree so what do you want readers to take away from the book? <laughs> Good question. I, um, great question. Um, I want them to, to think of Haiti as something that we all already know more than we think we know about it. Um, and that, and that involves looking at tropes and stereotypes and, um, and then looking right past them and trying to figure out what, what it is that, that's actually there. And, um, you know, I want, I want them to understand that, uh, that the Haitian example was not alien to the United States. It was not politically alien. It's not socially alien. It was actually built of many of the same sorts of ideas and arguments and human actions that, that we think of as, as American, you know, and, um, in various ways and, um, the, the appreciation for freedom and human dignity and progress and in, in many ways and like hard work and, you know, uh, like, um, intellectual, like, uh, self-evaluation. These are all like things we think of as American, but the hate, but Haitians were, busily doing them at a very high level much earlier than we think of and um and that's that that is that makes haiti a sort of really profound um you know sort of fellow traveler with uh the united states i think i agree i want to ask you and i have to ask this what are you working on next Sure. So I've got a project shaping up and um, it, it has learned uh, a lot. I tend to focus on theater and performance and to some extent literature that, that deals with theater and performance. But um, uh, I'm, I am ex- uh, at least provisionally thinking about um, eco-critical issues. In, um, and some of that has to do with things I learned uh, while studying Haiti. So the idea of the, um, you know, the plantation environment in the Caribbean, there's been really neat work done on sort of like eco-critical approaches to the Caribbean and, um, uh, 
and colonialism in the Caribbean. And uh, I've been thinking about theater and its eco-critical implications um, and uh, to some extent plant plantation theater. And so this is a project that's a little bit um, that taking a new direction. Uh, it's, it's not simply thinking about a sort of sociological category uh, like being Haitian or, um, or, or a category like race. Um, but it, but it is sort of moving into, uh, for me, new areas that allow me to think of, uh, think about, um, the, those things alongside the environment. Sounds fascinating. I cannot wait for your next book to come out, uh, after reading this one, uh, which actually blew me away. So Professor Reed, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having this conversation. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Staging Haiti in 19th Century America to learn more about Haiti beyond what most would expect in stereotypes, to learn to try to discern what is, as Professor Reed said, fact versus fiction, um, and to see what's going on during this very tumultuous time period. And I will say it is for academics, but it's also for non-academics. Uh, it is a book that I urge you, it is on sale now to go out and pick up a copy and you will not regret um, to learn just more about a place, a society, a, a culture that has been so marginalized, but to actually to shed some light on the actual truth behind all of that. So readers, I urge you, go out and pick up a copy.